The Premiere On Podcast is brought to you today by our friends at Java Remix. Java Remix is the perfect blend of 100% organic Arabica coffee infused with nano-emulsified CBD. Cannabidiol, or CBD, is fast gaining a reputation as a remedy to treat everything from anxiety to depression, inflammation to acne. And now it's available in your morning cup of Java. Go to javaremix.com right now and browse through their available products. Java Remix offers traditional ground coffee as well as single-serve K-cups in both regular and decaf. And if you aren't a coffee person, Java Remix also offers CBD-infused teas, bath bombs, and body scrubs. And for our Prove Me Wrong listeners, go online right now, that's javaremix.com, and enter the promo code PROVEMEWRONG for a 20% discount off your entire shopping experience. And Java Remix also offers free shipping on all orders over $40. Once again, that's javaremix.com. Promo code prove me wrong. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. I am your host, Pete Lieb. Uh, I'm happy you joined me again tonight. Once again, I have a great show with me. Uh, My guest tonight is Mr. Ivor Davis, and he has graciously joined me so we can talk about his book, The Beatles and Me on Tour. If you've listened to the podcast for any length of time in the past, you already know how big a fan I am of the Beatles. Unfortunately, they had already broken up before I was even born, and I'm not a young man. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Beatles breakup, and here we are still talking about them today, and they are just as popular as ever and picking up new fans every day. Uh, You know, that's staying power. In the summer of 1964, Mr. Davis was the only British daily newspaper correspondent to cover the Beatles' first American tour, Start to Finish. He spent 34 days with the world's most famous band on the road, getting to know John, Paul, George, and Ringo in a way that most of us can only imagine. From their hotel suites, to the concert arenas, to the private jets, and he wrote a book about it. The Beatles and Me on Tour is his chronicle of their time together. Mr. Davis spent more than half a century as a writer for The Express, The Times of London, and The New York Times. Over that period, he has covered major events in North America and has interviewed some of the biggest names in show business. He is going to give us some firsthand knowledge of his life as a Beatle here tonight. You can find out more information on his book at IvorDavisBeatles.com or IverDavisBooks.com. So welcome, Mr. Davis, to the show. Nice to be here, Pete. Uh, lovely to talk about a group that, as you said a moment ago, are here bigger than ever. Amazing. My, my, I have a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old, and they are as big a fans of the Beatles as I am. And that's amazing to think about in reality. Um, so I'd like to start at the beginning with you, Ivor, if that's okay, and just ask about your background a bit and how did you ultimately become involved with the Beatles' first American tour? Well, I was very lucky. It's one of those situations where I was in the right place at the right time. 1964, I'd just been appointed West Coast correspondent for the London Daily Express. And that was a, a daily newspaper in London. It's still around. But but uh, that was a day, that was a time when, and I think you're too young to remember, but Pete, because people actually read newspapers then. Right. And they bought them. Anyway, so I was a West Coast correspondent and one day the foreign editor called me up and said, get on the plane to San Francisco. The boys 
are arriving any hour now. I, I said, who are the boys? You know, he said, the Beatles. So off I went from L.A., where I was based, West Coast correspondent, got off the plane in San Francisco. And to be honest with you, I didn't know that much about them because this was the summer of 1964. And the only time I'd seen the Beatles was in February 1964 when they appeared on a show called The Ed Sullivan Show, mm -hmm. which in those days everybody watched religiously Sunday night. So I'd seen them on. I'd seen the girls screaming. I didn't know too much about them. I got off the plane in San Francisco in 1964, went to the hotel, the Hilton Hotel in San Francisco, and there were about 2,000 young women screaming outside the hotel. I, I didn't know what I'd walked into. I managed to actually literally fight my way through the girls <laughs> to the front desk. The, the, the hotel clerk said, I'm sorry, sir, we are fully booked. I said, but I'm with the Beatles. He said, oh, well. And off I went upstairs, and they checked me in and met Derek Taylor and met the Beatles, and we were off and running. How, so they had already been, you said they were on the Ed Sullivan show before you met them. So they had already at least been in the United States prior to you uh, meeting them. How famous were they at that point in America versus what they were in Europe? Well, strangely enough, um, their first foray was in February 1964 when they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm. And really, nobody knew much about them. But once they were on the Ed Sullivan show, Brian Epstein, who was their very shrewd manager, said, hey, we're going to capitalize on this 73 million people wow. who tuned in to the Ed Sullivan show to see that Beatles show. And so Brian said, let's hit America. Because I want to tell you that Brian knew, and he was a very sharp, perceptive guy. Brian knew that most rock and rollers that came from England flopped. Tommy Steele and a few people like that. But the Beatles, he cashed in on that moment. And the Beatles sold out at every concert. And it was sheer bedlam and frenzy every step of the way on this 35-day tour. So what was Brian Epstein's influence or legacy on the Beatles because I know early in their career they had a much different image they had the grease back hair leather jackets you know much different image than what they had when they finally came over here for the first time what was his impact on on their overall transformation going forward Pete you've hit a very key point Brian went in to see them at the cabin and he cleaned them up yeah I mean they were they were in Hamburg where they played all night long from about 11 at night until 7 in the morning. They were greasy-haired, leather-jacketed, cigarette-smoking, vile-mouthed uh, guys who, who played these kind of red-light red district nightclubs. Yeah. Brian went in there and he said, much to John Lennon's chagrin, you've got you've to clean up. So he gave them the famous haircuts. He took them into a famous tailor shop in London, Savoy, in Savoy Row, and he made them these suits. Uh, and I saw the suits up close. They were they were skin tight. You couldn't yeah. you couldn't put anything in those pockets. And after each song, they bowed like they were meeting royalty. So the whole image, as you pointed out, was dramatically rechanged thanks to Brian's clever idea. And, and I'll just add one more point. Sure. It was, a, it was a stroke of genius because the Rolling Stones, who were also around at the time, 
with a scruffy, ragged bunch um, who would, who would, as somebody told me, would, if you let them into your house, they would burn the house down. But the Beatles were gentle. They were the kind of people that you took home to mum and dad for afternoon tea. And this was the image that Brian created so brilliantly. And so then they, you said John Lennon was initially kind of resistant to it, but they obviously warmed up to it. Were the rest of the guys okay with changing their look with that promise of kind of, you know, the future success? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, John was always the rebel. He was the yeah. troublemaker. John was a, a free thinker. John argued more with Brian than anybody else. Um, and so he kind of reneged about the change in uniform, if you want to say, mm-hmm. the cleanup. But he went along with it. And of course, it proved to be quite a brilliant stroke. So there was no guarantee of success in the United States when they started the tour. So, and when you first met them, did did you get the impression that they were nervous? I mean, they came off as very comfortable when they came in and were doing those first early interviews, but did they have a sense of what was on the line with the tour? Um, I don't think they really had a sense of what was going to happen. But don't forget, Pete, that what they did in Europe is that they they had this incredible acclaim, mm-hmm. and they and, and they they they'd done dozens of concerts already. Um, but America was was a big mountain to climb, so they were all a, a bit apprehensive, to be honest with you. And the first day I met them, they were all terribly jet lagged because they just got off the plane mm-hmm. from London, and it took a lot longer to get to California than it does today it, it, from London. And um, and what when I first went into the suite on the day I arrived, it was quite funny because they kind of they kind of grunted hello to me when I was introduced by their PR guy, Derek Taylor, but they were more interested in seeing themselves on television arriving in America. And so after 24 hours, once we kind of got together and we hooked up, when I hooked up with them, they, they, they sort of, they, they become, become more palatable. And, they, and, and they, you know, they had a great sense of uh-huh. humor. And as you pointed out a minute ago, on the road, we had a press conference at every stop of the way. And the Beatles were kind of a unified Marx Brothers. They were funny. They finished each other's sentences, jokes. And if you ever saw the movie uh, A Hard Day's Night, which I think a lot of people have right, seen, yeah. that was the way they were. They were they were humorous. They were off the cuff. And they had that Liverpudlian, wry sense of humor. And that, that got them a long way. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions was behind closed doors. Were they the same people as they were in interview form? You know, were they were they still that or were they putting on the act? Were they putting on the show, you know, playing the role or was it that's just who they were? It, it was really who they were. You've got to realize that Liverpool has a wry and a bit of a dark sense of humor. And they they felt even from the beginning that they were like that they were like museum freaks. Yeah. They showed up. And they did their thing and they did their comedy routine. And it was a comedy routine. And I can tell you, it was all ad lib. They made it up as they went along. And if you look at some of those press conferences, and I'm sure you have, right. they're, they're hilarious, you know. And then, you know, how, 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 did you find, uh, how did you find America, George? Well, you make a left turn at Alaska or something like that or wherever you make a left turn from. Um, I, I can't do the Beatles thing, right? But they were very good, and they they had they thought in a way like one. And as I say, I refer to the Marx Brothers, and they could they could do it as, as great improvisers. 
So you and they were nice guys once I got to know them. Once you got to know them. Well, and I think people don't tend to connect that they were very, very young still at that point. You know, especially now. I, you know, when, again, when I was born, they were fully grown men. So yeah. anybody looking back now, you, I see Paul McCartney as he is now, and you and you lose focus or lose perspective on he was twenty something, early twenties at that point, and the, and so in their early twenties. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but they came over. They were callow young men. They were not the mature guys that we now know. I mean, Ringo is doing his thing. Paul, of course, is Paul. Right. He's like a, such an icon, but but they were all young men who almost were mesmerized by their own success. And they, they saw the insanity. And I can tell you, having traveled with them, I was in limousine number two, they were in limousine number one, we were on a private jet. And whenever they arrived, wherever they arrived, whether it was two in the morning, there was, there was hundreds of girls screaming. So they kind of enjoyed it, except the only thing they didn't enjoy, it was the, the lack of of privacy, they couldn't leave their hotel, they were almost prisoners. And, and that worked well for somebody like me, mm -hmm. because, you know, I was in the next door room to their suite, and I could wander in and they, they didn't have anybody to talk to. So they, they were stuck with me. So you mentioned Hard Day's Night, and then you just mentioned again about just the level of groupies and fans that were there. Was it as dangerous as it looked? Like you know, I, I watched some Hard Day's Night when they're running through the streets and they're tripping and falling down. Was it that dangerous as dangerous as it looked were these crowds almost literally tear them apart well to be honest with you some of the crowd would have torn them apart wow although the girls told me afterwards that they were in love with them yeah with the Beatles I mean there was you know Paul had 6,948 women that loved him and you can you can go from there um but I want to tell you there's something in the psychological frenzy of a 15 year old girl that, it, that, 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 that a tank cannot stop. And I saw it because I was in a limo after a show because the Beatles escaped quickly after the show. Before the audience stood up, they were gone. And we had to get out in the limos with them. They were in limo one, I was in limo two. And I can tell you that many times they escaped by, uh, by, uh, by, by ambulance or by armored car. But on one occasion, um, I, our, our limo, I mean, I didn't get away in an armored car. I was in that <laughs> limo. And the girls actually came up, and it was kind of dark windows. And I want to tell you, if you've seen 60 young women shaking a limousine, and you're in that limousine, and they thought I was one of the Beatles groups, I mean, you couldn't see inside. Right. I was scared. I, I mean, they can overturn a limousine. So, um, I mean, there was, there was an element of threat to life and limb. Well, and that's, I always found that mentality so interesting in terms of, you know, they work themselves up into such a lather and, you know, in anticipation of getting close to someone without really a plan of what they're going to do if they actually make it there. You know, it's almost like they put all of their energy into getting there and it's like, what are you going to do if you actually get your hands on them? Are you going to rip them apart? That's, it's amazing. Well, look, it's two stories, I must tell you. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, at the Hollywood Bowl, they had a little fake they had a, a, a pool, a fountain in the front. And, and, and the Hollywood Bowl, I saw like 10 young women jumped in the water to swim like 10 feet to the stage. <laughs> and I would have thought, what would a bedraggled young woman have done, except maybe become electrocuted on one of the guitars? Right. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it, it was absolutely 
crazy. And the other thing that I'm sure you know, and you probably heard because you know your music, um, unfortunately, when the, once the Beatles came out on stage and started to play, I couldn't hear them. I was in the front row. Yeah. Because the girls screamed from start to finish. And it was it was insane. I mean, I, I, I mean, I usually say this and it's true. Um, I mean, I, I never knew the words of some of the songs until I actually went and listened to them in the privacy of my hotel room. Well, actually, I was going, that was one of the questions I had was that I had heard that during these concerts, the crowds were just so loud and hysterical that they honestly could not hear their own instruments. And then I was going to basically ask you, you know, were these shows really any good? I mean, what was the appeal of the show if you in the front row can't hear the music? Well, I mean, nobody could hear the music. Even the Beatles couldn't <laughs> hear the music, seriously. I mean, there were a couple of times when Ringo didn't know what song they were on, but he learned a bit to lip read, so he was able to pick up the beat when he thought well, they were on one song and they were on another song. They couldn't hear themselves. And I know we're jumping too far ahead there. No, that, that's Pete, fine. But, but right at the end of the tour, John said to me that he wasn't very happy with the concerts. He says, we're like a freak show. They come to see us, but not to hear us. And that was the key thing that, it, that resulted in 1966 of them stopped touring completely. They wanted to be known for their music, their mm -hmm. songs, their lyrics not for being a freak show, as John said, a flea, a flying flea circus. And so that's why they finished up almost very, very quickly and never performed again, except on the roof of Abbey Road. Uh, was there any truth to, and again, in seeing uh, Hard Day's Night, was there any truth to them ever using body doubles or things like that to misdirect the groupies and, and allow them to travel a little bit more freely? The answer to that is, I, I would say pretty positively, Pete, that they never used body doubles. Um, it, I mean, they did try and, as I said, get away from the stadium. Right. Um, in, 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 a, in a, a, a police car, in a limousine, in, a, in, a, in a, 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 an armored truck, in an ambulance, in a helicopter. Um, but they never used body doubles. Uh, I, I, I hadn't heard that, but <laughs> because... The body doubles probably would have died, been <laughs> Nobody wants that kind of job, do they? So how did they? So what happened? So you're you're saying they couldn't leave the hotel, and you were one of the the few people who were allowed to be in the hotel with them. What did you all do while you were in the hotel waiting for the next show? I mean, how did you get to know them? Well, here's what happened. Um, John would call me, Art Schreiber, who was the Westinghouse radio reporter. Uh, who was a political reporter and ended up covering the Beatles trip and he didn't know anything about the Beatles. But John would call us and George was sometimes there and we would play Monopoly at two in the morning. And John loved to play Monopoly. He'd call us at two, say, okay, we're having a game, come over. So Art and I and maybe one or two of the other guys would come over and play Monopoly. John would, in the middle of the Monopoly game, call his wife, um, and one-year-old son and do goo-goo-goo while he was rolling the dice in Monopoly. And and to be honest with you, John was also a bit of a cheat mm -hmm. when he played Monopoly. I mean, he kept <laughs> rolling the dice until he landed on the property he wanted. And and George, you know, the funny thing was, John was at the center of, of the buzz. George came along for these games, but George was not was a, was a man then of a few words. And that was a great thing, but also it was a bad thing. 
because I must tell you, Pete, that I, I was George's ghostwriter. My newspaper said to me, you have to write a column about under George's name. I mean, mm-hmm. I wrote it for him. But George never talked. George went to bed at 4 a.m., woke up at 3 in the afternoon, and uh, it was past my deadline. So I, I made up a few of the columns. And then one day, George got me in the private jet that we all traveled in and said, what you've written about me under my name is a bunch of old, he used a rather strong word, but yeah. a bunch of old rubbish, I'd say. I said, George, I never hear from you. You're asleep. For God's sake, let me know what's going on in your mind. And and we kind of had a truce and the columns got better. But as I say, George was not the most articulate. John was the one, he was the kind of a, really the leader of the pack and Paul was a, a terrific guy, a very amiable guy, the kind of guy he is today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw him last year at San Diego, Petco Stadium. I went back the stage, had a long chat with him and he, you know, he was Mr. Personality. Who did you feel like you connected with the most? Was it was it John that you felt like you had the best connection with? Yes, I think, it, I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that John, I mean, because John was the brightest, he was the most informative, he was the most uh, wanting to learn about America. I mean, I sat down and listened to Art Schreiber, who was the guy from Westinghouse, political guy, talk to John on the plane for like, 45 minutes about Martin Luther King, about race riots, about John Kennedy. And John listened, and John wanted to learn that. I mean, with all due respect to Paul, he wasn't interested. Ringo, well, he wasn't interested. And George, you couldn't get a word out of him. Right. So what was their first impression of America? I know it had to be difficult to get one when you can't leave the hotel, but you know, if they weren't actually able to leave, what was that first impression of America like for them? Well, to be honest with you, you just hit the nail on the head. They never got out of the hotel at all. I mean, you've got to realize we arrived at two in the morning or three in the morning or whatever. Uh, we got a police escort through the streets to the hotel. There was always somebody at the hotel. Uh, then the Beatles got up and they had a press conference every day. They sometimes did two shows a day, one afternoon and one evening. So uh, by the time they finished their concert, they hadn't seen anything. And that, and, and when John went back to England at the end of the tour, he said, I'm sorry, we never saw anything. The only time they saw anything of America was when they went to, they took three days off. Uh, they were in, we were in Dallas. They took three days off. The guy who ran the charter company, I forgot, I forget his name, invited them to his ranch. And the Beatles went out there, relaxed, went horse riding, celebrated Brian Epstein's birthday on their own. That was the only break they had in 35 days. So John complained, I wish I could see more of America. Of course, he did come to New York mm-hmm. and he did see a lot of America. And unfortunately, well, yeah, were they they were very prolific songwriters as well and, and kind of constantly putting out two or three albums a year, it seemed like, you know, for, uh, the, for mean, the seven I years. Mean, yeah. Hey, you know, the, 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 the amazing thing about Paul, particularly Paul and Johnny's, I would go into the room. I mean, we had access into the room. I would raid his mini bar, uh-huh. much to the chagrin of Brian Epstein, who said, you know, you're using too much booze, boys. Cup. I mean, they were earning millions, thousands, and Brian Epstein was complaining about using too much mini bar booze. Right. I, I would go into the room, and, and, and I knew instinctively they were sitting on the floor. On the, uh, They were writing songs. 
And uh, on one plane, one of the plane trips, I said, you know, you guys, you're nonstop. You've got to understand, they churned out, as you said, so many albums. And and we, this was August, September 1964. They had to bring out a Christmas album, which had to be finished by by early November, late October. So I always saw them writing on yellow legal pads. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They threw the yellow legal pads with the lyrics into the waste paper bin. And to this day, I regret never retrieving that. Right. Imagine what those could be worth, right? Just a doodle from, from John even, Lennon. Don't even, don't even mention it. <laughs> don't even mention it. Well, and again, it's, it's something that for perspective, you know, bands nowadays may do an album every two years or, you know, every year and a half, two years, three years. They were literally doing three a year for them to be together seven years, roughly, and to have, I don't know, 12, 15 albums, however many it was. That's to not only make them, but then to be so good and so life changing and the music to be so transcendent um, with just constantly touring and writing and touring and writing, at least for those first couple of years, people don't really get a sense of that. No, uh, that, that is a very, very important point you, you make because, because now, you know, it takes two years and one, you get, you get one album. Yeah. They were so prolific that it, that it, it, it boggles the mind to even think about it. But, but whenever they had a spare moment, John particularly and Paul, they were the ones that wrote most of the stuff and occasionally they threw a song that Ringo or yeah. a song that George. And, that, and, and, and to be honest with you, you mentioned the 50th anniversary of their divorce. Part of the reason the divorce of the Beatles came about was that, that, that George wanted to be a, a you know, to, to write his own stuff and he didn't get enough. And he complained about that. And Ringo, of course, also was tossed a crumb or two. You know what I, and that's off kind of off topic, but it always stuck with me too because I I really honestly thought, especially later in in their career together, that George wrote some of the better songs that they had. I mean, b- between Taxman and and Here Comes the Sun and uh, something, you know, some of those those songs were just beautiful, just amazing. And maybe it was through osmosis, you know, being near the other two, and it, and he improved, improved, improved. But then All Things Must Pass, his album came out right after you know, they all broke up and it was amazing. It was incredible. Yeah. So those songs could have been on Beatles albums. I, I have well, a hard they, they time. Could they could have been. And yeah. in a way, when the breakup came, as you said, 50 years ago this year, um, George wasn't that upset because he felt he wanted to be his own man. Right. I mean, you, you, you can't, I mean, you've got to capture the essence of the time and, and he knew he wanted to be creative, and he knew that he wasn't being creative with the four, with the three other guys, because you know I don't think it was a deliberate thing. But I mean, John and Paul were the ones that composed most of the music, ninety percent of the music, the songs. And George felt he, he and he was a creative, brilliant man. And he, when he broke away, and when the when the when the breakup came, um, George wasn't that upset. George said, I'm going to do my own thing. And he went off and he did, I think with Dark Horse Records, or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he did some great stuff, as you said. Absolutely. So, so that helped, that sort of put, put the grease under the wheels of their breakup. Yeah, he was always, to me, it always kind of reminded me of he's, you know, the rose bush trying to grow in the shade of the oak tree. You know, the, those other two guys are this enormous blanketing yeah. influence, and he could never get enough sunlight to actually grow on his own. 
And and I don't know that they ever just said I know that I don't know that they ever came around mentally to the fact that you know what he's really improving and and we should include him more. I just no, don't think they ever did. You've got to get back into the time mindset. I mean, John and Paul say we write the song. Right. You know. Um, I mean, if if George had said, "Hey guys, I'd like to contribute," but but it, but you know, it's easier said than done. I mean, the inquest that we're having right now. Why didn't they let George in on the act? Because right. he showed that he had it, didn't he? He had the the moxie to do his own stuff, and um, so. But but it was that was the way it was. The two guys and the others who were not. I mean, they weren't interlopers, but they were kind of. They were on the perimeter. Right. You know, the Beatles themselves are so influential to really almost, you could almost throw a dart at any band currently right now, and they will say that one of their influences was the Beatles. Were they themselves influenced by anybody? Did they want to meet anyone when they came to America? Yes, they did. Um, uh, first of all, they wanted, John wanted to meet Bob Dylan, and they did okay. meet Bob Dylan, and they wanted to meet Elvis Presley, and they did meet Elvis Presley. For sure. And I was fortunate enough to be around when they when he when they met both of them. But as you pointed out a minute ago, uh, they were inf influenced by the a lot of the black music um, singers, right? Because John John used to listen in England. Uh, in England, they didn't have that that many great radio stations. So John used to listen. I know this because I used to listen to a to an outfit called Radio Luxembourg, which was a, a, a sort of a pirate radio station in Luxembourg, in in Germany. Um, and and um, John got all the great American music from from that station. So they were influenced heavily heavily by that. And um, and they went to see. Well, Bob Dylan came to see them, bringing um, bearing gifts of. Um, the high-grade marijuana. Nice. Um, in in, uh, in at the end of the tour in 1964, and then in 1965, they they both they all got to meet Elvis uh, at Elvis's house. But that's kind of an interesting story. Can you can you talk about it? Well, of course. Yeah. Well, well, the first year I knew that um, because you know we were uh, the little coterie of journalists uh, w knew what was going on for most of the time. <clears throat> They wanted to meet Elvis, but Elvis was working on another movie. Right. And the Beatles were running all over the country. And Brian Epstein met with Colonel Tom Parker, who, as you know, is Elvis's, was Elvis's manager. And they never made it happen. And then in 1966, in the summer of 60, sorry, in the summer of 65, a year later, I got a call from Mal Evans, who was a road manager. He said, we're going to meet Elvis. Get over here. So I raced over to the house. We got in the limos. We went went to Elvis's house, and the meeting took place. Well, I want to tell you, you had these two giants of the industry meeting. Brian Epstein and Colonel Tom Parker said, "No media recordings, no cameras. There is not a single picture of that night." But I was I was the wallflower. I was watching, yeah. and it was quite a quite a funny incident because. Because when they got there, Elvis was sitting on the couch surrounded by his Memphis Mafia pals. Uh, Priscilla was there. I, I remember her because she was young, very young, and she had she had a, a six-foot bouffant hairstyle. That In those days, girls were there. Right. They were four foot seven, and they wore six-foot bouffant hairstyles, making them very tall. 
And Elvis sat on the couch watching television. And nobody, but nobody said, um, Elvis, I'd like you to meet John, Paul, George, and Ringo. So after sitting around for 15 minutes, Elvis jumps up. He'd been changing the, uh, uh, the, uh, the remote control on the TV and said, hey, you guys, if, if I thought we came here to jam. I'm going to bed. If not, well, of course, the Beatles like that. And they finally loosened up and they did jam. Paul Ringo had to go in and play, play billiards snooker in the other room because he didn't have drums. Uh -huh. But they started jamming, but not Beatles music, Elvis stuff. Um, uh, some other other pop pop music, and they did it for 20 minutes, and that broke the ice. And then at the end of it, they were there for a pop, probably about an hour, and they had a buffet, and they sort of sort of mingled. And the Memphis Mafia said to to John as we were leaving, "I hope you guys get together with Elvis again," but it never happened. And I can tell you this for a certainty because. I know, and many people remember, when Elvis Presley went to see Richard Nixon in the White House and took him a, a, a gift of a, of, a, of a couple of guns right. and handed it to him. Remember that? Yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, Elvis badmouthed the Beatles. And the reason he did it, I think, and I think it's pretty, it makes sense. First of all, Elvis was top of the hit parade. Number one, the Beatles come along, boom. He's, he's, he's now no longer king of rock and roll. And also Elvis was making, and I know this because I visited Elvis on some of his films, he was making, I would say not crappy movies, but cookie cutter movies. Every right. movie, the same story, a different leading lady. Elvis made three movies at least a year under kind of slave labor circumstances. The Beatles come along with one movie, which is open while we were on tour, it was called A Hard Day's Night. Right. And it was a sensationally successful film. So Elvis, honestly, was very jealous of the Beatles. And so when he went to see Richard Nixon, he said, these Beatles, you know, he badmouthed them. He said, these Beatles, and it's it's on the record. I'm not making it up. He said, they, they come to America, they earn all this money, they go back to England, and they badmouth America. Well, it wasn't true. And so when Ringo heard that and the Beatles heard that, they were very... PO'd that, that, that Elvis should, should say what he said. And they never met, to, met again. Do you feel, just kind of well, telling that story, the first thing that comes to my mind is, do you feel like his whole, I'm going to sit here and change the channels and not really interact, was kind of a power play in his mind that yes. I'm, going to, I'm going to make them introduce themselves to me versus huh. me stand up and be a, a stand-up guy and say, hi, how are you? I'm, you know, I'm well, Elvis. Well, you know, it, it's very interesting. Yeah, you have hit the nail on the head. You know, and, and, and you know, I, 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 I thought about that story. I've written about that story. And that, and that subtext that you have just, you have just said, because, I mean, you're the host. Yeah. You're the, you're the guy whose house. Right, you, exactly. You to. I mean, doesn't it make sense that you would get up and greet your guests? Yeah. Who doesn't no, get up and say, hello, hi, I'm Elvis. Nice to meet you. Hi. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was, it, it, it's no good. I mean, it, that scene never escapes my memory. Yeah. I mean, there was Elvis sitting there, it dressed like Elvis would. And, and I always remember he, he had those sideburns like they were like old fashioned shag carpeting. It was so thick, you know, you could, you could lose a, lose a comb in, in his sideburns. But he sat there, this was his kingdom. He was fiddling with the bloody remote. Right. And, and nobody brought them together. Uh, I mean, it's elementary, my dear Elvis, isn't it? Well, yeah, and again, you know, these are still young men in '65. They were still young men. This is somebody, yeah. an, an idol of theirs. You know, they go in 
maybe a little bit awkward not knowing what to say. Yeah, that that's just such a weird thing for him to sit well, there. Somebody has to be. Yeah, somebody has to be. They have to have somebody like you to say, "Hey, yeah. Elvis, John, Paul, or somebody to kind of break the ice." But exactly. It, I mean, it was so awkward, and we just, you know, we weren't supposed to be there. I wasn't supposed to be there, so I was, you know, no way I would go out and say, "Elvis, I like you." To, you know, you needed, you needed somebody to to do the yeah. the, the diplomacy. Well, you know. That that again speaks to uh, the mentality of some of these famous people. You know, Bing Crosby was uh, jealous of Frank Sinatra, and then Frank Sinatra yeah. was jealous of Elvis, and then Elvis became jealous of the Beatles. Yeah. But, but that also says, you know, in looking at the Beatles, and you know, there's always it goes around between the Beatles' relationship with the Rolling Stones and how everybody tried to make that a, a competition between them. But then you saw Mick and Keith in the sitting on the floor in the crowd during the All You Need Is Love video, so they obviously yeah. weren't in competition. They were all friends. And it seemed to me like the Beatles didn't have that group that they were jealous of or that they hated or that they would sit and fiddle with the remote and wouldn't stand up and say hello. It's just a different mentality. But, yeah. Well, actually, this is like a psychiatric analysis because now yeah. I've never really gone into this. Um, but but you're right. So there, inwardly, Elvis must have been seething because these young yeah. interlopers, these young kids come to his house. And and not only have they knocked him off because you know he, he was he was Mr. Hipster, wasn't he? He was the the, the one. And these these young kids from England shout, come to his house. How dare they dethrone him? Right. And and, and there it is. And that that explains why we had this fifteen minutes of uncomfortable nothing. Well, you know. Um... It is that it is that way that mentality sometimes when you're like you know how dare you not come and kiss the ring I've been yes. sitting here for 15 minutes how dare you not come in here and kiss the ring and and bend that's the right. knee you know and and give me go. the respect that's, yeah, that's it that's yeah. it I mean I, you knew John wasn't going to do no, that no absolutely I mean John told me I mean he I mean he grew up on a Heartbreak Hotel and Blue Suede Shoes I mean he loved Elvis's versions of that uh, but but. But it's interesting that, that, you know, you've turned the micro, microscope <laughs> on it, and that's exactly what was going on in the room. So when your time with him was over, and did you have a feeling at the time, kind of how historically significant what you had just done or what they had all done together was going to be, or was it just another assignment for you? You guessed the answer. No, <laughs> it was just another. No, 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 guess the Yes, exactly what you just said, the latter. Yeah. thought it was another assignment. I mean, I had a good time. It was an it was an amazing experience. Uh, I got back into L.A. I I think I think to be honest with you, the next the next day, my office said the Warren Commission report has just come out. Hmm. Get in on that, right? Yeah, you, know, you know, it just it it was like here today, gone tomorrow. But I did keep in touch with with them, and I did cover the second tour and then the third tour. But but it's a bit like my office said. Well, you know, you did the big first tour. Mm -hmm. Keep an eye on them. Visit them when they're in L.A. And file any stories that you think are worth filing. So, um, you know, so you go on like a journalist. Unfortunately, when you work as a daily newspaper correspondent, today it's the Beatles, tomorrow it's the Warren Commission report, and the next day it's something else. And I, and I never knew that you and I would be sitting here 50-odd years later talking about that. And the Beatles didn't think they would last more than five years. 
you know, in reading through your bio, and this is kind of a little bit off topic, but in reading through your bio, you, to your point, have covered a lot of incredible situations and circumstances in history. If you're looking back at it now in that in that era of the 60s, because it was incredibly turbulent. Well, you went from everything from, um, you know, landing on the moon at the, at the end, which had to be an incredible to John Kennedy being assassinated at the beginning. What would you, where would you slide in that tour now, looking back now against all of those other things that you covered? I mean, I, I think you also had covered Bobby Kennedy's assassination. You were yeah, there. I, yeah, I, when Bobby Kennedy, I was in the kitchen when Bobby Kennedy was shot. But, you know, you mentioned the moon landing, and this is a little bit off yeah. Off what you asked, but I'm going to tell you this story. Sure, because absolutely. This, you, this is kind of weird. Now, I've, I've never mentioned this, but so when the men were about to land on the moon, my London office called me in California and said, we want you to go to Australia right now. They said Mick Jagger's girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, has taken an overdose of pills. And we want you to do an interview with Mick. So I thought, they're, they're, they're actually, the, the real reason they want me to go to Australia is they want me to go to the Aboriginal area where they, the first photos of the men landing on the moon were going to be available. And then I went, uh, get a photographer, and we, we'd send back the first pictures of the men on the moon because we were ahead of the game. Don't forget, communication wasn't worldwide then. Right, right. So I jump on the plane, I go to Australia, and I get to Australia, I land in Sydney, I get into a taxi, I get to the hotel, I call the office, I say, is it the moon pictures you want me to get? They said, no, we want you to go and interview Mick Jagger because Marion is in hospital under life support. She lives and she's right. still around. Um, and so is Mick. So I, I, I don't know why. So, uh, so, you know, you go from one crazy story to another crazy story. And I've almost lost the theme of what the question was originally, Pete. So just, it was more just how would you rate, you know, in, in all of the things that you covered during those 60s, where would the, that Beatles tour be historically? Well, the Beatles tour was was quite high on my antenna. Mm -hmm. But, um, but you know, the funny thing is in the years, I mean, for many years afterwards, I didn't tell too many people about it. I mean, I wrote my book about uh, only a few years ago, my Beatles experiences. Right. Because you're covering stories every day. And even my kids uh, didn't know. And they knew vaguely that, I, you know, I had a picture of me and the Beatles, a big picture of me and the Beatles together and a picture of me and George. But, uh, but you know, you don't say, wow, you don't highlight it. And I never did highlight it. And it, in retrospect, it was, it was an incredible experience. And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, you're at the right place at the right time. It's just right. pure serendipity. So going past uh, the 1964 tornado, you said you were able to keep contact with them. I would also just like to get, and you were, and quite honestly, I wasn't alive. Again, I wasn't alive when they broke up. So I wanted to kind of get a feeling from you. What was the feeling in the world just in a, a few short years later when they announced that they would no longer be touring with the amount of, you know, spectacle that the tour in 64 had? What was the feeling like when they came out and said, we're not going to tour any longer? Well, I think that, I think the general public were upset. But, it, but I had kept a, a finger in the pie a little bit. I knew Derek Taylor, who was there, who's now the late Derek Taylor, who was their PR guy who came to California. And I got to know him very well when he lived in California, worked for the Beach Boys and, 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 and the Birds and people like that doing PR. Because Derek Taylor was a brilliant man, a witty guy, a Liverpudlian. 
mm-hmm. who knew the Beatles intimately. And when he came to Hollywood, every rock and roll group wanted to hire him to sprinkle some of the Beatle magic dust on them. Um, so, um, so where was I now? I, 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 you know, I've gone off on this side street. Bring me back on the on the straight road again. Just um, yeah, the breakup, the breakup. Sorry, yeah. Or just how um, they how the feeling was when they were no longer going to tour. When they said, "We're just going to yeah, stay in the studio now. You're not going to see us in public as much anymore." Yeah. Well, I mean, we knew, as I said earlier, that John particularly wanted to do to make music that people listen to, and they didn't want to be a freak show. Mm-hmm. So there was that element. And then I was, don't forget, Brian Epstein died or of an overdose, accidental or otherwise, of drugs. Brian was the conductor of the orchestra. Brian had done what we t- we discussed and put them on the path to fame. So once he was gone, there was nobody to call. And so uh, Paul ended up uh, hooking up with uh, his wife Linda's father, he's, uh, who was a, a, an entertainment lawyer, Linda's brother, who was an entertainment lawyer. John, in his usual Machiavellian way, hired a guy called Alan Klein, who was a a kind of a pit bull of a guy who got a lot of money for his rock and roll people, advanced money from the studios, uh, because most of the rock and rollers were scra- scra- scrounging to get their money from from the from the record companies. Right. So there were all those elements in it, and George wanted to do as we discussed, wanted to to, to to show the world that he's a talent in his own right. So there was John and uh, George, and um, Paul was on his own, and uh, Ringo. So there was a three against one, and there was all these elements of a nasty divorce. They, they had arguments, they couldn't get themselves together. And finally, John admitted to a, a writer that they were breaking up. The writer and, but said, don't, don't print this. And then 50 years ago this year, Paul announced the Beatles are over. And I think people were very upset because, um, I mean, they were, they were huge. Uh, but they went their separate ways, as we know. And their separate ways actually turned out to be hugely fascinating, as we know. Right. See, it wasn't the end of, of life for them, was it? Although Paul was very depressed. So uh, to go back to, to like 66, 67, when you had mentioned that Brian Epstein passed away, did how much of an impact did that have as well? Because again, he, as soon as he passed away and, and, and he was no longer, his influence was no longer there, they changed radically. The, the band changed radically. The, again, their, their dress changed radically. You know, the drug use really, really took off. The music chain did a, just a seismic shift in the direction that the music was going. How much do you think that of that was them wanting to try something different? And how much was just saying, you know, the, we're, the shackles are off, we're free, you know, this, this influence that had been pretty overpowering, and now they can do what they want? I, I think uh, that it's elements of all of what you said, as, as we discussed. George wanted to do his own thing. George became enamored with... Uh, Ravi Shankar, mm-hmm. Indian influence. George was the one that got the Beatles to go to the Maharishi, to go to India. I think I forget where it was, but off they went to find the real meaning of life because they'd had success and they were young men. And suddenly they woke up one day and said, you know, is that all there is? There's got to be more. And and so these these swirling elements of the Maharishi. I want to I want to do my own thing. Uh, I, you know, it's about time you 
I got the credit I deserve, mm -hmm. said Juan. And all those elements came together. Uh, and the divorce, the breakup was, was quite a bitter one. And, and um, I know that Paul was, was you know, shattered by that. And the other two elements I should bring in is, and a lot of people said, well, did Yoko break them up? Not really. Uh, did Linda break them up? No. But you see, John was besotted by Yoko. And, and the Beatles were absolutely PO'd when he would show up at recordings with Yoko. Right. You know, who the hell is this woman, they <laughs> said. And uh, John said, John stuck to his guns. He said she's going to stick around. And so those elements added up to a rather explosive atmosphere that ended up, not surprisingly, in the, in the end of the Beatles as we knew them. Well, she even started taking pictures like she was literally in band pictures. I mean, there was a yeah. picture of there was a promotional picture for the band and Yoko yeah. was in it. You know, that that's just so odd. You know, like Well, I mean, I mean she showed up, she showed up at the recording sessions and 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 and, and the, the the other Beatles were apoplectic. Yeah. I mean, they you know, who the hell is this woman? Suddenly, you know, she's not a Beatle. And um I've got to give it to Yoko. She stuck with it. I mean, my god. She's now the keeper of the John Flame, and she's, uh, you know, a, a formidable lady. I mean, it's amazing to me. She has become, that whole scenario has become the butt of a billion jokes, right? Whenever yep. anything, whenever there's any inside influence or something that comes in that messes, breaks yep. something up, it's always, that's your Yoko. I mean, her name is going down as synonymous with yep. like a home, with a home wrecker even uh, well, forever. Well, yeah, homewrecker. I mean, that was the way that was the way she was perceived. <laughs> yeah. Because after all, not only was she Asian, but she came from this alien environment they didn't know anything about. And she was a little bit, um, what's the word, how can I put it, uh, unusual, a bit different. She wasn't a Liverpool wife. She wasn't a yeah. girl from Liverpool. And, you know, the, the difference was huge. And then all of a sudden, John refused. I mean, they were tied at the ankles, John and Yoko. And the Beatles did not like that. So all those, as I said, all those swirling uh, elements added up to we're gone. And just to put on my, my junior psychology hat again, you know, I was also looking at you because we mentioned John's rebelliousness and his lack of respect of a, for kind of authority. And it seems to me like that might have also been one of those ultimate factors for the breakup because once Brian Epstein was gone and you know and he was again the the managing force and, and but he wasn't one of the band he was somebody separate once he was gone and then there was that vacuum and then by all accounts Paul kind of worked his way into that leadership role and really started driving the day-to-day -day of the band and we're yeah. going to we're going to go in this direction and this is kind of you know started having much more impact on the music and was doing drums for Ringo when Ringo quit and was yeah. overdubbing some of George's guitar parts and that alone you know which may have tweaked John even more because this is now one of his peers who is now trying to take over as the leader when he had always been the leader before I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you have any yeah, thoughts no, no, on I that. Think, I think that analysis is actually spot on. It's perfect. Because um, because Brian was the arbitrator. When there was a dispute, they went to Brian. I mean, uh, right. he he was the schoolmaster. He was the headmaster. Um, I mean, I used to see him sort of tut tutting and telling John off for misbehaving at a press conference. Or I mean, it was like it's like, like Daddy telling you, don't do that again. I'll smack your bottom. <laughs> anyway, but that 
thesis you've given me is about right. And Paul was beginning to, um, I use the term, sow his wild oats, mm-hmm. but I only mean it in, in a fiscal way. Because, because you know, they'd given away their music. Uh, they, they, they didn't get a great deal. I mean, the merchandising, which was huge and which John hated, had earned big money. And um, Brian didn't do well on that front, but he did well as being the, I mean, when, when there was a dispute, Brian resolved it. He wasn't there anymore. So right. there was, there was about, it's a bit like if you were running a film studio and the boss of the film studio left, there would be an inner struggle within, I, mean, I mentioned film studio anywhere, right. corporation. There'll be an inner struggle between the key principal players to gain control. And that's what happened. And, and that, that's nicely put by you. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time where uh, you had peers and then one of those peers was placed or or kind of seized control over the other and, and there was yeah. hard feelings there. And that doesn't, that is not, uh, and, and again, it went on for a while. It went on almost all the way up till John's death. He was writing bad songs about Paul, you know, and putting yeah. them in, in his, his albums and they were dissing each other back and forth. And it was just really sad to see because they had they had been best friends as far as, yeah. as everybody knew. Well, it's a bit like, you know, um, you're not telling me what to do. Please. Right. Come on, don't do that. And it, and, uh, and and it's a bit like a, a marriage which has gone off the rails and she's blaming him and he's blaming her and the, uh, and, 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 and people are taking sides. It's, it's human nature. Right. Well, I have one more question for you, if that's okay. We're coming up on yeah. the hour here. And so my last question is, what is it in your opinion about the Beatles that make them still relevant today? And I mentioned, you know, I have a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old myself, and from, it seems like from birth, they would be in the back seat of the car at four and five years old, and they could tell me if John was singing or if Paul was singing. They really? knew the difference in their voices because, well, because it meant so much to me. You know, it meant so much to me, and I, I love them so much. I mean, is it as simple as just that there was great music or there were, but there are a lot of bands who have made great music. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts on what has made them still relevant this this long after? Well, well, in a way, um, their music has become part of our lifeblood, if you like music, and it becomes almost second nature to us. And yet, yet I discover what you just said. I mean, I go to Beatle conventions and I see such a wide range of people, the right. kids, the grandkids, young people who love the music. And you've got to look. I mean, I listened to Breakfast with the Beatles. Absolutely. With Chris Carter, I don't know, who, who knows his stuff brilliantly. And he has a great show. And and when I listen to the songs and, and you know, they resonate, even, even though I heard them first time 55 years ago. You're right. And you play them today and they're still pretty good, aren't they? And in this era of, of coronavirus, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, look at look at the songs. Here comes the sun. I mean, you could probably rattle off six songs that are that are Beatle uplifting, the the inspirational. Absolutely. I mean, Let it be, and uh, all you uh, need is love. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, just look at it. I mean, we could go through and we can pick out ten in ten seconds. So so the music has is indelibly part of our lives if i mean even though you're much younger than i am of course and then your kids are much younger than i am but people love it people just find um, solace happiness in, in in what they've done and that is uh, amazing 
Well, you know, um, record players and, and vinyl records have started to come back now. It's kind of a thing yeah. now. It's a little yeah. niche market. And my daughter has a record player and she got Abbey Road for Christmas. And she came out of her room the other day and she's like, man, that album is so good. And I was like, wow. I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. How, old, uh, how old is she? She's 17. And, wow. you know, she's just like, man, the vocals were just perfect. And, and the way that, the you know, she'd especially love that that whole 15 minute, basically the, the second side is just yeah. one one continuous jam. And and she just loved how that works. And it's it's amazing to me, again, as I'm 47, they're 19 and 17, yeah. that it has the same effect on them that it had on me when I was I first discovered the Beatles, maybe around 1983 or four, when I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And again, at that point, I told the story before. I thought it was just, I heard, um, got to get you into my life. And I thought it was just Paul McCartney because I was used to Paul McCartney. I'd heard him solo. And so I didn't realize yeah. it was the Beatles. I didn't know who they were. And and then when I heard the, the the DJ said it was the Beatles, then I went back and started looking up all their songs and, and just fell in love. So, um, but, but let me just turn the sure. question on you then. I mean, why do you think the 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 Beatles today are are as vital, if you like, as they were fifty years ago. And, and why do we love the stuff? I think now, I think it's still an impact of oral tradition. Almost at this point, it's almost like grandparents passing down to their kids, passing down to their kids. You know, um, people who are my peers who have children who are young are dressing their their children in Beatles onesies yeah. as the as a baby yeah. and when my kids were in, in utero my wife had headphones on her stomach and we we played in my life we played the beatles on their stomach when wow. she was but in that, but there you go that's your yeah. answer that's a perfect wow but but that's it, what it, i that's, i think that we are still and as now my daughter will will pass that down to her daughter and and so many bands kind of get come come close but just fall a little short of that and yeah. you know, I think it's they've gotten a myth, a mythos now about them. They're they're almost mythical. Uh, yeah, and also, I mean, Paul is still around, Ringo's still around. I went to the concerts of them both. They they are pretty phenomenal. You know what we've got to do at, at another date, Pete is you can imagine me as a reporter, and I'll leave you with this. I get to cover the most horrendous murders of California, Southern California, the the Manson murder mm -hmm. case as a reporter, and I go to the Spahn movie ranch and I interview uh, the members of the Manson family who were not involved in the murders, and they suddenly say to me, the reason they went out and killed was that Charles Manson played the Beatles' White Album, which we all believed the lyrics of the, in, in, in the songs of the White Album are telling, see, telling us that there's going to be a race riot and there's going to be bloodshed in the streets. And I th and I sit there listening to this absolute garbage, mm -hmm. and then I go cover the trial a year later, and guess what the guess what the prosecutor comes up with as a motive for the murder? I mean the the Beatles White Album. I mean talk about a horrendous misuse of music, but. But, I mean, that's another story, but maybe for another time. Well, and I, and just to touch on that, I think that they also kind of created a little bit of their own monster there with all the imagery that they were putting in and all the subjectivity, you know, in terms of the album art and the whole Paul is dead. I think that, yeah. you know, they'll say now, or I know Paul says now that that was just, they didn't do that. It wasn't real. But there were so many 
coincidences in the artwork. And so many times when they made Paul seem different than the rest of the band and to, yeah. to not be doing it kind of tongue in cheek. And so when you start, when you open that door and you start yeah. easing people into this, this type of mindset, there are unstable people out there. Plus, plus the fact that I, I'm very familiar with, so I've written a book about the, the Manson murders mm -hmm. and stuff, but they were also heavily under the influence of mescaline, LSD, all sorts right. of drugs. So you've just outlined, you know, you can, you can perceive this when you're sober, when you're heavily under, under the influence of mind-bending <laughs> drugs. Wow, you can believe anything, can't you? And song lyrics are historically up for interpretation. That's you know, right. You know, I, I have a friend of mine, I'll tell you this story. I have a friend of mine who used to work for EMI Music Distribution, and he just kind of yeah. met bands. He met bands as they came into town, and he would take them out to dinner, and then they would go do their show. And he's yeah. having dinner with, it was a band called Radiohead. I don't know if you know them, but it was just yeah, a... So he's sitting there, and this is a huge moment in his life. He's talking to Radiohead. He's very excited. And there's a song that they had called Fake Plastic Trees, and he loves it. And so he's talking to the lead singer, and he says, that song changed my life. That is, it's, a, it's so amazing. The lyrics are so great. What does it mean? And the guy's like, it didn't mean anything. It was just a stream of consciousness. I was just writing words to, to fill the music, and it crushed him. It crushed him uh, because uh, he wanted yeah. there to be this meaning. And yeah. So that that's the, just the point where you no, can interpret. No, no, well, I mean that's a perfect example of taking a lyric that was harmless, right? Fake plastic trees, right? And turning it into whatever you want to turn it into. It can have meaning if you want it to have meaning. It will, and so you know, the Manson family wanted that to have meaning, or he wanted it to have meaning for them, and yeah. so he made it that yeah. way. Um, thank you so much, Ivor, for for making time with me and with us tonight to discuss your your experiences. Is there anything else? I know that we are, again, we're in the kind of the tail end here of, of this COVID-19 process. So you may not be doing a whole lot of public appearances, but you did just release a book called Manson Exposed. And we talked about it briefly here for a moment. Is there anything else that you wanted to take a moment to plug? Maybe your Manson book? Well, um, I mean, the Manson book came out um, a few months ago. And um, uh, but now nobody, you know, I mean, now we're trying to survive. Aren't right, we? right. Um, the other thing I'll mention is um, late last year, or was it last year? I think maybe the year before, I have a children's book. And I'm going to tell you what oh. it's called. It's called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Penguins. <laughs> and it's about four penguins from the British Falkland Islands, which is really near Argentina, who decide they want to become rock stars bigger than the Beatles. And they, they, they actually get hired on the Falkland Islands by a manager there called Brian Fishstein. <laughs> they are so successful, these young penguins, that they get invited to appear on the Ed Pelican show. And their first big hit is I Want to Hold Your Flipper. And you say so this is a, a child's book, you said? Yeah, it's a children's book, yeah. So there you are. You are, yeah. you are furthering the mythology. You are, you are yes, introducing. I so, so, I mean, I had fun writing it. Um, I, you know, I wrote it for kids, but, but adults enjoy it. So it's called, ladies and gentlemen, the penguins. It's got nothing to do with murder. It's got <laughs> a lot to do with music. And it's a fun book for kids. So, you know, I've got the Beetle book. I've got the penguin book. And I've got the Manson murder book. So, you know, what, what, what's going to be the next thing? I don't know. Well, let me ask you this real quick as well. Did you like, I mean, I don't know if you've even seen it. There's that movie yes, called uh, Yesterday where the oh, yes. the world forgets the Beatles and he starts to play it. 
What, yeah. what were your thoughts on that? I mean, I thought it was cute. Right. I, I, I liked it. I mean, it, it was, you know, you had to, look, you go to the movies and you do have to stretch credibility. <laughs> yeah. Slightly, slightly. I thought the guy did a great job. I think uh, I know that the, the, the Paul and I'm, I'm sure Paul enjoyed it because they had to give permission for all the right, music. Right. And I never asked Ringo about it. Paul said he liked it. Um, I, th I I kind of enjoyed it. I, and it was it was just fun. I think, uh, it, you know, it was well done and it, and it was well produced. A good director. I forget his name, but he's a famous director. And I, did you like it? I, I did. And I liked Again, I liked the idea of it because I it is something that bakes your noodle. I mean, it really is to me. It's a great idea. What if yeah. it didn't exist and you were bringing that music out again right now? Would yeah. it still have the impact that it had then, or was or were they manufactured by the time they were living in? You know, what yeah. was it? Was it the music really, or was it the music and the guys and the band and the way they were looking at the girls and interacting with people? Was it both? You know, because he didn't look anything like the Beatles. He didn't have the same charisma that they had. No, so, no. you know, I personally think it has to do with both of them. You know, it's, it's those guys, those collection of guys, because the Rolling Stones make great songs, too. The Rolling Stones are not looked at historically the way the Beatles are. So not with not with so much affection, right. really. I mean, on, on, a, on a, a one to ten scale, I would give the Beatles have a ten and the, and the Stones probably about seven. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I'm being unfair on Mick and the crowd, but I, but, but but as a heartwarming, endearing, endearingness, the Beatles are off the scale. Absolutely, aren't? absolutely. So again, I really appreciate it. Once again, everybody, that's IvorDavisBooks.com. The book is called "The Beatles and Me on Tour." It highlights the 1964 American tour. Ivor Davis was with the Beatles. Uh, pick it up. There are a lot more stories in the book that we didn't talk about. We're not going to give oh, away all the punchlines. Tons of stories, and I had fun writing it. And um, if we had another six hours, I could tell you more stories. But this has been fun as well, Pete. Thank I you. appreciate that. I appreciate it very much. Maybe we can we can work out some time and, and do a part two another time. I would I would love it. I'm a huge fan. I appreciate it. Great. Good to talk to you, and uh, stay safe. Thanks. You too. I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So once again, that was Mr. Ivor Davis and The Beatles and Me on Tour is the name of the book. And again, this is just a passion project for me. Anybody who's associated with The Beatles, I'll put them on the show. I love the band. I've had multiple episodes about the band now, different aspects of the band, The Paul's Dead Conspiracy, my favorite album. Now just talking to someone who was there in the room and uh, I'm incredibly excited about that opportunity to talk to Ivor and see how the, these guys were as very young men, early 20s, first trip to America, trying to get their you know their feet under them, not really understanding what was in store for them for the rest of their lives. I mean, Paul, I think, is the wealthiest musician in, in the world and maybe one of the most recognizable faces in the world. I would say that the Beatles are probably if not the most recognizable band ever, then it's, I don't know who is. If, if you don't, you're saying that the Beatles aren't, you're going to have to provide me who you think is. So a lot of really interesting stuff there. Uh, I think it was in, that Elvis story is super interesting to me because there's always that guy, you know, he, he struggled to get where he was and then he was intimidated and jealous of the guy who wants to come and knock him off and doesn't have the grace or 
you know, the self-confidence even. That's what it kind of seems like to me. It's the self-confidence to look at these four guys, these four young guys who are just starting to make their career and make their lives and extend a, a hand in friendship and say, hey, guys, good to meet you. I love what you do. Had to make them come and, and kiss the ring before he would um, interact with them. That's a, that's such an interesting story to me. I don't know. I don't know what, what any of you think. What do you think? Do you have any questions or thoughts about what Ivor has said here today? Um, what do you think about the Beatles? What do you think it would have been like to have been on tour with them, with the female attraction that they had and having to essentially be locked into their hotel because they couldn't move around with just the number of fans that were out there? not being able to hear the music. Can't tell if you're playing the right song. When the drummer can't tell what the guys in front of him is playing, that's a problem, typically. That's a real big problem, not knowing what song you're playing. So while I, I would have been heartbroken myself to think that two years after that, they, they say, we're not going to tour anymore. When you get to that, and just with the level of technology that they had back in the day, they didn't have the in-ear monitors or the different things technologically that they have now which would allow them to be able to hear better. So maybe it is just, hey, there's there's no benefit to being up on stage and not being able to hear what we do. Let's just stay in the studio. It makes sense. But what are your thoughts? You can drop us a line on our email address. It's provemewrongcast at gmail.com. You can also contact us on Facebook or Instagram if you'd like. You just search Prove Me Wrong. It's the name of the show. You'll find us. If you're looking for more content itself, we are on pretty much every podcast platform there is, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, SoundCloud, any app that you use to find podcasts, you can find the Prove Me Wrong podcast, like and subscribe to the podcast page, and you'll be notified when a new show releases. We typically release a new show every week. So every week you'll get something new, you'll get a notification, and you can hear what we're talking about this week. We're also on YouTube, as you see here on this little scroll, like and subscribe to the Prove Me Wrong YouTube page. And once again, you will be notified when a new YouTube program uh, is released. So before we go, the Prove Me Wrong podcast is brought to you tonight also by Zendo Zone Citronella Burners from JT Eaton. They're shaped like fearless little tiki gods, so you can let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendo Zone Citronella Burners. Zendo Zones uses natural 3% citronella candles and incense cones. They're perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsites, poolside, and more. You can enjoy the outdoors again. They are available on Amazon.com and at select Ace Hardware stores. Collect them all today. So once again, for my guest tonight, Mr. Ivor Davis and his book, The Beatles and Me on Tour, I am Pete Lieb. This is the Prove Me Wrong podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. 